Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 154 is from the Kana Rinse community and also from, well, the NYU. It's Jesse Fuchs. Welcome to Sound of Play. Hi, Leon. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. We've uh, we've chatted uh, a bit over social media over the last, what, year or so? Mm-hmm. Um regarding your work which we'll definitely get into uh, and excellently some of your musical choices will inspire conversation about that work but just to give an overview before we talk about the track we've already heard there from mule what what do you do because it sounds amazing (laughs) yeah no i am an incredibly lucky person i'm not quite sure how it happened uh but i'm an adjunct instructor at the nyu game center uh i originally came in uh, I kind of grew in my job along with the game center itself. When I came in, I, it was basically just someone in the community who uh, knew a decent amount about board games. They needed kind of a oh, fake right. grad student. They didn't have a grad program yet. They needed someone to sort of act as a TA to run recitations, do other things like that. Um, they brought me in. As the program grew, you know, it became there, there was an undergraduate minor, then there was an MFA program, and now there's a full undergraduate major. Um, I got to start teaching a full class of my own. That went well. I got to teach a few more. Uh, and now, basically, what I do is my sort of bread and butter is intro to game design, which is essentially board game design for people who probably want to make video games. 
ultimately, because it's a lot of, you know, you've, you've come to the program for the first time, you don't necessarily know how to program yet, so we're not going to uh, throw digital stuff at you, but you want to learn the principles of designing games in general. And so it's a class where they mostly do group projects around different themes of uh, making their own tabletop games, and then tying sort of the principles into, you know, doing readings about video games and talking about how this stuff connects. Um, and then the other half of what I do is, is a bunch of fun survey classes. Uh, the one we'll probably be talking about the most is uh, the, the one full four-credit class is American Computer Games of the 80s, yeah. uh, oh which God. is enormously fun. And when I'm teaching, it pretty much takes up my entire life of just there's an infinite amount of research and stuff I want to tell them about and just figuring out how to fit it all in there. Um, and that is actually a spinoff. Uh, Bennett Foddy, who teaches there, and Clara Fernandez Vera, who also teaches there, uh, had done European games of the 80s, mm. uh, and that went really well. And so we decided to, you know, do do this half, uh, and then hopefully we're going to get Japanese games of the '80s eventually as well. And besides that, actually mostly tabletop stuff. I do a, a, a modern tabletop literacy class, which is sort of basic gateway games, uh, some critical plays on like Vlada Havadil to get more specifically into a specific tabletop designer, um, a class on traditional card games, so like Whist and Bazique and oh, okay. Euchre and things like that. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Um, it's fun. Uh, I get to I get to talk about things I like, which is about as good a job as one can hope for. Sounds amazing. Yes, and uh, and I've been very flattered that you've actually uh, you've tapped tapped my brain for a bit of uh, sort of in oh, yeah. insight to being a, a, a one of the the not very many uh, Atari eight bit gamers in Europe in the eighties. I mean, there were a few of us. There was a hardcore, um, and I ended up as an Atari eight bit gamer, not really out of any sensible reason. It was the computer that was in my mum's mail order catalogue that I could afford. And I knew it had good games, but I didn't, uh, I've, I think I've spoken about this on either Sound of Play or Cane Rinse before, I didn't really understand the concept of market share. So I didn't realise that I would only be able to get hold of in this country about like a tenth of the amount of games that the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum had. So I liked those machines and I envied my friends ones, but I ended up getting an Atari and it made me a bit of a, an out, outsider but in, the, in in a way you know I have this I have incredibly fond memories of my time with it um, the cassette loads were horrendous oh, like man. they were they, they had no turbo loaders possible on the Atari so unless I mean some games were on cartridge I never could afford disk drive so I was always looking at between sort of four and often 22 minutes for a cassette game to load but uh, it was a very very capable machine the Atari 800 that I had and uh, in the right hands it could really sing um, and musically it could really sing although perhaps your first pick <laughs> in although it's a fascinating piece and a great tune it's it's not necessarily the best sort of um uh sort of exhibition of the pokey uh, sound chips uh, <laughs> capabilities would that be fair well it's funny right i mean up against the commodore 64 uh and i was right i was an atari partisan as uh, something i have to be careful of teaching this class is to yes. you know uh atari and commodore 64 are both lovely uh but when i was growing up um i had an atari 2600 uh, you know i got that when i was four um, actually the Sears version, but essentially the same thing. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And uh, then I got an Atari 800 in, I was trying to remember, I'm guessing, I'm almost sure it would be Christmas 84, January 85. Uh, ah, I was very lucky. 
in that uh, my birthday is in November. So I did not mm. have to have great self-control to be able to put money from birthday and Christmas together. Um, and I saved up everything I got, basically. And I think it was right. It was with a disk drive about $330, I remember, mm. Mm. which was definitely, it was, it was starting to hit the deep discount. Um, they were starting to panic. Essentially, Commodore was just driving them yeah. out of the market. But things were still coming out for it from like 85 to 86 yes. because programmers really liked it. They liked yeah. the, uh, the chip setup. It was Jay Miner who also did the chips for the Amiga. Um, and they have very similar setups in Commodore's a little more brute force is my understanding. Um, mm. But the Commodore does have the SID chip, uh, which yes. is, I think, a more musical you know, it was designed by people who went on to uh, found Ensonic, were, were synth people, you know, where people listen. Once to they worked out how to kind of wrangle it, because initially in the early days, I don't think there was much, there wasn't that much sign that the C64 could do anything more interesting musically than any other 8-bit computer. But it was when people started to do the whole interrupt thing and, and sort of right. pseudo sampling and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, I think that follows with the Commodore 64 in general. And I do wonder how much sort of popularity is, uh, you know, feeds on itself in that people totally, just kept yeah. figuring out things about that yeah. machine for like a decade. And they still are. If you, yeah. if you look at some of the homebrew games that are still being made for, for the 8-bit machines uh, to this day, what they are getting out of those machines now is staggering. Yeah, no, and and I actually played the Commodore version of the Mule theme and Atari theme up against each other just to make sure I mm. wasn't, you know, being too partisan. And I actually do prefer the Atari one because it yeah, is yeah. a little warblier, uh, like because <laughs> it can't exactly hit notes. The Atari does have, uh, you know, more of a, I don't know, video game sound to me. Uh, and this tune is, it's a very silly song, but I was trying to think of uh, when you, when you, uh, asked me to be on the show i was like oh this sounds great and then i kind of froze and panicked because all of a sudden i realized <laughs> the weird thing was i realized that the first dozen things i thought of were not video game music that actually right. i tend to more find more memorable pop music recontextualized through a video game to make me sort of rethink yeah. it uh, yeah. And that obviously does not work on, you know, that Fallout 3, right? You know, the soundtrack to that. Yeah. I'm a big fan That's of that sort of show, music. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense because uh, without the context of the game, the, that that point is lost. Um, and so, and and when it comes to actual video game music, I realized that the things that stuck with me are very basic. Like you do not, I'm mm. sure someone's done Firelink Shrine already, you know. Oh, yeah. Someone's mm. done... Uh, Super Mario 1-1 or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but then I started thinking, and, and I think, yeah, most of my, my uh, choices are insistently catchy. Uh, probably mm. not the, the, the highest art, but they're, I'm, I'm a simple man. Uh, and they are the catchy <laughs> tunes that have really stuck with me. And certainly the mule theme. Uh, I love it just because it's so happy and boppy. It sets up the song, and it also... The more I read about that game, the more I admire the people behind it mm. um, and the the way it was constructed. You can really feel like it was uh, it was Ozark Softscape. Uh, they were in Arkansas. They had a cabin by the lake, and they just mm. play tested this game for like a year, inviting their friends over. And it just has that kind of like, yeah, this has been gone over and over and over by people who are really having a good time in a social context you know, in a, in a pleasant place by a lake kind of feel to it. Um, and yeah, that theme song just seems like, you know, a very optimistic, uh, you know, it was the founding of Electronic Arts. They did not yet yeah. know that this game uh, would not be a hit. 
you know, would not sell super great, uh, even though it's a legendary game, you know, has, has certainly sustained massive in, cult following. Yeah. yeah. There's loads of remakes available online and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it also is one of my favorites because it, um, it is on this perfect line between a digital game and sort of a tabletop game, uh, which mm. is kind of where I've always lied of, you know, um, yeah. I never actually played Mule. It always looked interesting to me, and I was a fan of those early EA uh, releases. Um, for those who only think of EA as this monstrous behemoth now that releases annualized franchises, they actually started off, like most software companies, as a small outlet uh, that were either licensing or, or creating from within in some cases. Uh, these quite uh, really, I mean, as so many games were back then, they weren't following genres, they were creating new ones. Uh, this was 1983. And yeah, if you could encapsulate Mule in, yeah, like a simple sentence, how would you, yeah, if you were trying to pitch it now to somebody, what would you say? I mean, it, it, along with some of the other EE games, um, you know, this is sort of, if you reconceived Monopoly um, from digital ground up, right? The the play mm. experience of a social board game like Monopoly about buying and selling and, you know, messing up your uh kid brother or whatever uh gouging them uh monetarily yeah. um and you yeah. sort of rethought it from first principles assuming there was a computer that is really the sense of and and that's the interesting thing with those there's six you know debut ea games uh mm. two of them are basically decent polished arcade games uh mm. one of them is pinball construction set which is revolutionary mm -hmm. but had already been an indie hit for bill budge that they just republished um, and then the other three are Mule, Archon, and Murder on the Zindernoff, which are all kind of this take a board game concept, Archon Chess, yeah. Zindernoff Clue, Mule Monopoly, yeah. and reconceive what this would be like if computers had always existed. Um, and I find that a really interesting and you know, fruitful sort of design approach. Yeah, I was still, you know, I was still buying games for my Atari right up until I got my Amiga in uh, 1990. So it was still possible. There were some very great, excellent late releases from budget software houses like uh, Zybex and Draconis and things like that. So you could still, yeah, you could still get games for it just about going into the uh, into the 90s. Hmm. Um, but yes, there was also this massive back catalogue going all the way back to, well, really the late 70s with Star Raiders and stuff like that. So uh, it had a good innings, actually. <laughs> Yeah, no, there was definitely, I, I did start noticing, you know, 86, 87 things were coming out. I think it was the the D&D game that I was very excited about, Pool of Radiance, uh, mm. came out on Commodore, but not Atari. And that's kind of when yeah. I knew the, the, oh, the yeah. bell was rung. Absolutely. Um, yes. It, it, I mean, the, the Spectrum and C64 both had magazines running into the sort of 92, 93 era, whereas the Atari magazines disappeared in the in the late 80s. And uh, yes, and that was yeah, one of my motivations to, uh, you know, bring on the next gen kind of thing. Um, but yes, though, so Roy Glover wrote that uh, piece for Mule. Um, and you, yeah, you get to hear, uh, you got to hear to open the show there, some of the yeah, slightly interesting, slightly warbly, atonal uh treats that were offered by the pokey chip but um yeah i mean we haven't got it on this show but i think i've featured it before uh rob hubbard's warhawk theme which uh mm -hmm. you know is a very punchy kind of bass led uh quite melodic piece um there are some others but we've also got some more in this show but as always we're alternating uh, jesse's picks with uh, some selections from the forum i've tried to keep them relatively appropriate to represent some other uh, tracks from the era and this one is requested by whipple dip 
who says, I have no connection to the Metroid games, but came across this elsewhere where the soundtrack is recreated with proper synths and basically turns it into Metroid as directed by John Carpenter. So we've heard Craig's Lair before from the NES original, but this is an analog synth remake by Luminist. Hirokazu Tanaka's Craig's Layer, but played on analog synthesizers, or at least what sounds like analog synthesizers, by uh, somebody calling themselves Luminist. So that was 1986, a few years after uh, our first pick, Mule, and on the console, and it came from Japan. Um, but uh, Jesse, my guest, Jesse Fuchs from the NYU, next pick is uh, one of my all-time favourite soundtracks and one that one that blew me away in the arcades. Uh, they, it was one that was uh, often on a loud attract mode cycle. Um, and this piece that you're about to hear, the second part of it, the second phase in particular, would absolutely grab your attention and demand that you went over to this uh, this peculiar looking machine with its rather unusual looking game that I still think looks fabulous to this day. Jesse, tell us about Marble Madness and why you like this piece of music. This is one that I've heard a million times and I loved it and never never consciously registered. But uh, after you asked me about the show, I immediately did what I always do, which is panic and then slack Bennett Foddy um, and mm-hmm. be like, uh, what should I do? And he reminded me um, of Marble Madness, and I was like, "Oh my God!" Right as soon as I listened to it, it it clicked. It it, it is that funny thing of um, right. It, the background music works on me. It, it's it's working subconsciously, and I never mm. um, recognize it while I'm playing. But as soon as I listened to it on its own, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is absolutely perfect. I love this." Um, 
And yeah, we had had uh, a trackball machine with two trackballs uh, set up while I was teaching the 80s class uh, in our library. Uh, and Bennett was programming various uh, oddball trackball games of the era. And Marble Madness was the one that I think went over the best because especially when you play a two player, um, it yes. is just one of the most intense games. Um, and it is this perfect it's very short, uh, which doesn't bother me because I've never made it past the fourth stage anyway. Um, ah. But, uh, you know, it's a very small, perfect kind of game, right? I, I don't know quite how to, it's sort of miniature golf course meets MC Escher. Uh, yep. You're a marble. It, it is definitely the most, uh, I'm not the, the, I don't teach games philosophy, so I'm not sure if it's diegetic or mimetic, uh, but the controller, you know, um, you're a marble, mm. so uh, what do you do to control it? You have a big marble, and when you move the big marble, the marble moves. Uh, yeah. That made intuitive sense to me. Uh, originally, yes. I think it was actually supposed to have motorized trackballs that would spin in conjunction with the ball on the screen, uh, wow. but that, that proved too expensive. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's more likely to break down, I would imagine, in the arcade as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that seems. It was, well, uh, it was designed, it was the first game by Mark Cerny. Uh, yes. And he was like 19 or 20 when he designed it. Um, and yeah. it was also the first Atari game that had a uh, FM synthesis sound chip, like the um, the one in the Yamaha DX7 that uh, brought back all the old musicians from the 60s and the 80s, made them sound hip and contemporary. That's right. And it's a, it's a very similar sound chip to the one that uh, Sega put in the Genesis or the Mega Drive. And, uh, and we were on our uh, currently available to Patreon's uh, Genesis Mega Drive podcast. John Linneman, uh, retro expert, was saying how he's still appalled that the Mega Drive conversion of Marble Madness has an absolutely terrible rendition of this music because yeah. it should have sounded identical. Give or take. Yeah, I don't know why you would mess with it. It's so it is so perfect and so of its. It does. I. I uh, it did make me think that uh, Billy Joel's The Nylon Curtain came out in '82, and it does remind <laughs> me a little of Pressure in that you know it is very unsubtle with its riff of like trying to transmit a feeling of you know pressure, essentially, um, and it just has this insistent. Uh, yeah, the beginner race. Just as soon as I heard it, I have this. I tense up. Uh, there's not much time. Move the marble. And yeah, I highly recommend. It's a, it, it, Of course, it is uh, a problem that um, to really play it, you do need... A mouse would work certainly better than a joystick. And yeah. that's why I've never played any of the home versions, because I just instinctively was like, it's marble madness. That's I don't have a marble. How can I play this? Funnily enough, uh, to tie it back into our previous conversation, this was one of EA's first licenses. They uh, they produced oh, yeah. the 16-bit port, and this was the version I played at home because uh, back in... I mean, I think it came out on the Amiga in about 1985 or 86. It was really early, and... Uh, it was a mouse-controlled game, and I picked it up when I got my Amiga in, in 1990, when it was still hugely exciting to have. It's not arcade perfect, but it was. It looked much more like the arcade machine than anything I'd played at home before. Um, and so I did actually complete it on the Amiga with the mouse. It was actually probably slightly easier, in a way, because mm -hmm. you had slightly more direct control, uh, even though the, the mouse wheel was theoretically still resembling what the trackball would do. But yeah, it worked pretty well, and it was a, it was a pretty decent port, although the music didn't have that same timbre that same uh, fm 
quality, unfortunately. But uh, but yes, it was it was all right. And yes, since then, Marble Madness has popped up on various uh, compilations, Atari-based compilations. And of course, Midway bought all the rights to these games and they've bundled in Atari games as part of those in in uh, in the last decade or so. And it's it's OK on an analog stick, but it's not you'll never get the same experience as you would in an arcade. So uh, if you can get to a a, a a proper you know classic arcade and try marble madness out i think it's pretty timeless in in a lot of ways and the animation in on the enemy sprites and stuff and and the various things that can happen to your marble are still genuinely beautifully animated and amusing i think yeah no that's the remarkable i mean one thing i noticed going through arcade uh stuff i mean the the class is mostly computer games what we talk about arcade and console mm. um is that american games don't tend to be cute you know, like the, you know, Japanese arcade Not games, so they, yeah. they very quickly understood how to translate sort of the principles of cartooning into this, you know, pixelated digital format. Whereas even the best American games, like Williams games, Williams games, you know, Joust uh, and uh, uh, Defender and et cetera, et cetera, are wonderful, but mm. none of them are cute. And Marble Madness is in a way maybe the first cute American game, like where mm-hmm. the sort of principles of squashing and cartooning and other kind of like... Right. How how do you make a marble feel like it's a little living thing um, actually really come across? Um, and yeah, it's it's probably uh, Mark Cerny. You know, uh, he uh, is a very impressive guy. I have I have a ridiculous anecdote, which is that thanks to being friends with Bennett on PSN, Mark Cerny keeps po- uh, poking up as one of my suggested friends that it keeps telling me to like befriend. Nice. And he designed the, uh, or, the PS4. You know, had a huge and, and, hand in designing PS4. Yeah. Right. And so I thought of that and I was like, well, I mean, the person who made the machine is telling me to do this. Um, so I wrote him a note saying, you know, I like Marble Madness. Please be my friend. Uh, and then I hit send and, and it didn't even get rejected. The computer, the PS4 just told me, like, this cannot be done and then kicked oh. me out. So I'm getting very oh. mixed messages. Uh, from Mr. Cerny. Um, Quite deliberate on his part, or possibly not. Uh, Maybe out of his hands. But yes, uh, for those who who don't know, uh, Mark Cerny had a lot to do with not only the PS4, but also Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, Spyro the Dragon, Crash Bandicoot, uh, Ratchet and Clank. um, Mm -hmm. uh, Nack. Knack more recently, um, but also yes, his his most recent credits. Uh, were, well, his his next credit is probably going to be on um, Kojima's Death Stranding as a technical producer. Hmm. So uh, he's got he's got quite a CV, and yes, it didn't quite start with this because he had uh, Major Havoc, which came before this. Oh but, right, that's him. Yeah, I totally yes. forgot. That's this a was great his, game. Yeah, this was his second, uh, and yeah, let's hear it. Some of this amazing music by Brad Fuller and or Hal Cannon.
Marble Madness there from 1984, 34 years ago. Still, to me, looks and sounds and plays great. Um, yes, I, I, the two-player thing, I'm not sure. I, uh, no, I I do have memories of playing it two-player, but it was one of those where you could play it with a friend and it would be more fun in a way, but you could also... Uh, probably have a better go of it without <laughs> right without no the... they will bounce you off the course by exactly. accident not unlike yes. joust it's sort of a yes. you, you can try to cooperate but eventually one person will accidentally hurt the other and the cycle of revenge will begin combative um, co-op but yeah, yeah and they'll get more money out of you so but right yeah. if, if you're if you're getting free credits definitely gang if you get to play a two-player it is uh yeah a remarkable game still a joy so next up, this is uh, another selection from the forum uh, with no particular message behind it from uh, from our friend Flabio. Um, now, I just wanted to pick this one because it fitted in with the sort of timeline of the tunes we're playing, but also it represents the SID chip on the show, which I think is, you know, it's fair to give a compare oh, yeah. and contrast. And also this is a deeply beloved piece. So this was uh, by Martin Galway, who we featured before, uh, famously the nephew of uh, celebrated flautist uh, James Galway. Um, and this was from the Commodore 64 port of what I believe was an MSX Konami game called Comic Bakery. I've never played it. Do you know anything about Comic I know Bakery? nothing about it. I um, it, I listened to this and it's absolutely fantastic. And yeah, yeah I mean, is, it yeah. definitely falls in that category of people really figuring out the Commodore 64, the SID chip. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I have really nothing, you know, unfortunately, I am. Um, I really wanted to actually audit that European commuter games, the 80s class, uh, but I was not able to because I was teaching a class at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, I guess so, this is a Japanese game converted oh, to a European. Yeah, yeah no, it that was makes Konami sense, originally, right? So um, uh, I looked at the box and it, uh, the imagined version, I guess, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is in that that UK game tradition I have not played. But um, but yeah, no, I um it, it, it makes me want to play the game, definitely, because it's, it's and, an amazing yeah. song. And it also, uh, we can also, even though we can't see it, and this is a podcast, uh, we'll also use this uh, as a belated tribute to the late uh, Bob Wakelin, who, of course, uh, painted all of those fantastic uh, game covers for Ocean. So this is uh, Comic Bakery.
Martin Galway's comic bakery there from the Imagine released Commodore 64 game, the 1984 version. And yeah, I think that's exactly it. When uh, I started getting, uh, hearing people talking about computer game music as being more than just, uh, yeah, scratchy or monophonic sounds, uh, people were starting to push the envelope in uh, surprising and remarkable ways. Yeah, no. no, there's, I don't, I'm not that much of an expert on the Sonic end of things, but what I understand is that with the C64, you could do um, those, uh, you mentioned the interrupts, right? Yes. And I'm not, I, that you could switch between voices so fast mm. that you could make it mm -hmm. sound like you had way more than three sound channels. That's um, kind of it. Yeah. And, do arpeggios and all this kind of yeah, and stuff. It's pretty remarkable and um, and definitely worth looking up to see the the, the uh, YouTube clip you sent me of it shows the three waveforms. Mm. Uh, a lot of those uh, C64 songs uh, are up on YouTube where they actually, it's very cool and sort of synesthetic to see them uh, awesome. while you're listening to them, which actually is probably a good lead into the next one uh, because this is a, the, the soundtrack to a, a, an opening movie of such ambition yeah, um, yeah. I'll have to, I've never seen this before. I will try to paint a mind picture for our listeners. Please. Yeah. Um, but yeah, have you ever played or heard of the alternate reality series? I remember the reviews of the game in Atari User Magazine over here. And uh, although I was, I was, I, I came to role playing games quite a bit later. Um, and I didn't really, because I'd never been a tabletop gamer, I didn't really understand all these stats and things that were going into it. But I remember reading that review quite a lot of times. And I remember reading about how it rolled you up a character by, is it, if this, this is my memory from 33 mm -hmm. years ago, you rolled up a character by walking through a door at the start of the game. Yes, and, it, and the, it's like a slot machine where all of the yeah. stats are spinning at different speeds. It's incredibly yes. stressful and still one of the most brilliant uh, CRPG <laughs> yeah. character creation screens I've ever seen. And I remember thinking this game sounded fascinating and incredibly ambitious, but it was disc only. No cassette. Yeah. No, yeah, no, it would never have. It, it uh, barely fit on disc. Could have gone back to it, but never did. Well, here's the good news. <laughs> is that it It does sound incredibly ambitious. And it is It is definitely one of my favorite games to talk about. Uh, some of these yeah. RPGs, uh, Wizardry 4 is the other one, where it's one of my favorite things to talk about. No one should ever play it. Um, Tough to play now, yeah. And Alternate Reality of the City is the first of a projected seven game series, right? I remember that too. Uh, Didn't Philip really Price. pan out. Like the, uh, what was the one from a few years ago that was supposed to be the start of a <laughs> massive series? Um, I forgot what it's called, but uh, it, it stopped at one, that one. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was, there was um, the city and then the dungeon were originally, were the two that came out and the dungeon was originally supposed to be part of the city, uh, but it was just too ambitious. So the city ends up being essentially a hub without spokes. Like there is nothing to do in it, but sort of level up and die. And you'll mostly die. It is one of the yeah. most remarkable games <laughs> in that it, it has um, smooth scrolling texture mapped 3D graphics like sort of like Ultima Underworld 10 years earlier obviously yeah. less technically you know uh, but um, and it it tries to simulate everything it, it has hunger cold disease intoxication you know uh, like Far Cry 2 sort of uh, you know like quality of simulation where it's really there's a weather cycle mm. uh, there's day night cycles but um, and you start the game without any weapons or armor or no money uh, and you just die over and over. 
yeah. and of course it takes like 15 minutes back in the day to you know get back because you die and it's permadeath it's not like you go back to a checkpoint um but uh it had this amazing opening and in the game the best part by far is that if you can find a bar or the armorer or whatever each one has its own song um and so really all i did cool. was try to survive long enough to find uh, one of the places that has a song and then i would sit there and listen to the song and all of the songs as with this one uh, have kind of a follow the bouncing ball where there are lyrics that are being highlighted as the you know melody is being picked out um right. in the song yeah. Um, and so uh, hopefully we can include the, the, the lyrics to this masterpiece uh, at the end of the show notes or something. I will not try to sing it. Uh, but um, yeah, that, that this piece, I'll try to paint a quick mind picture where uh, you'll hear some sort of noises at the beginning. That is, there's a, a shot of the city that is the hustle and bustle and traffic. Uh, then a big spaceship comes down and it, it'll start heating up and you'll hear some blasts. And that seems to be a tractor beam, I guess, because I think you're being yeah. stolen. Uh, and then and then as the music heats up, the spaceship goes away into space. Uh, there's sort of a title credits where it's, you know, designed by this person, music by this uh, Philip Price, music by Gary Gilbertson. Uh, the musician Gary Gilbertson gets like second credit. He's clearly, you know, considered almost as important. Um, and then it goes into this uh, this song uh, that has these lyrics that are printed on the screen, and you'll hear it sort of pick out the melody as it goes. It has a really lovely bridge that I still get stuck in my head. Uh, and then and then you land in some sort of air dock, and it goes to that slot machine character creation. Uh, so yeah, uh, if you get a chance, definitely go on YouTube and watch this. Uh, do not play the game. However, alternate reality of the dungeon, the irony is that the whole point of the city was, okay, you can just sort of level up theoretically, uh, and yeah. you'll be ready because, of course, all these games were interlinked. There was going to be the arena, which had, which was like pirates, Sid Meier's pirates, and had multiplayer online battles over the modem, in theory. Uh, all sorts of great ideas wow. that never... An early, uh, very early game where you would have rolled your save on from one title to another in the style of uh, a modern, more modern game like Mass Effect or, exactly. or The Walking Dead. No, yeah. that was the thing that just transfixed me was, you know, I was reading about this and I was like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And uh, But the dungeon is actually... Uh, it's still too hard, but now that you can sort of, you know, save scum on an emulator, it's it's playable and it's way more full of interesting stuff. And your character will almost certainly start out better off than they would have if you had spent 30 hours on the city anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's how life works. But um, but oh, I do recommend uh, the music's not quite as good. But as a game, the dungeon, if you're interested in like strange 80s RPGs, that <laughs> is actually, you know, a recommendation. Super niche. Well, let's hear it. This is the, the spectacular intro by Gary Gilbertson from Alternate Reality, The City.
the thing I really liked about that watching it is the way that they've uh, you can see that it's actually choreographed like there's some synchronization between the the events on screen and the music so the, the the noises of the tractor beam actually kind of form a crescendo in the music or, or a punctuation and it's clear it's very clearly timed as such it's not just random it's not it's not just the backing music to a piece like it's the it's in the way that you probably expect again from something more contemporary it's clearly been the whole thing's been designed from start to finish yeah no it's i mean it's definitely the most triple a thing i'd ever seen in my life at that point just wow. in that sense of like, wow, yeah. you know, you put this yeah. on to show your friends and be like, we are living in the future. Completely. And um, and yeah, it's still I still find it really impressive. It definitely feels like Price and Gilbertson had these enormous ambitions and did the thing where you just start with full energy at the very first thing, which is making the intro. And then you still have a lot of energy and you like make the game and then you run out of energy before you can put stuff in the game. Um, but yeah, like this intro is the intro for a seven game series. That's the you know <laughs> most popular thing ever made. Uh, it, it, it holds that promise still, even if you know oh. the truth. Did, um, they, did they do any kind of a, a similar introductory sequence for the dungeon or does it just go straight? Yeah, in? no, no, no. It is... It's actually just kind of a pale imitation of this one. Um, okay. The song's not as good. It's a different song. The song's not as good. They kind of shorten it, but it's still, um, yeah, sort of like, you know, the second episode of a sitcom does not have the, the full story theme song. They just, kinda, yeah. you know, hit the marks. Uh, but the songs within the game, it still does the thing of if you go into a bar or something like that, there will be um, a song that pops up. And those are all just really entertaining. Somebody somewhere is probably coding the rest of the series right now as we speak. We can only hope. <laughs> now next up we have uh, we're back to the Famicom or the Nintendo Entertainment System uh, this is partly to remind listeners to sound a play that we are currently covering the core series of Final Fantasy games over on the Kane and Rince podcast uh, we had a, a question on Twitter yesterday asking if we were covering the MMOs uh, 11 and 14 the answer to that is no because uh, not, not enough of us have played them and we certainly couldn't commit to playing them enough in time for the show or, or live with them for that long so but uh, the shows 2, 1, 2, 3 and 4 are all already out there uh, we're currently working our way towards five but this is also relevant this pick uh, from the forum because uh, itv because they're incredibly imaginative about these things as always are currently uh, they have their world cup opening title sequence to this piece of music because uh, it's probably the most obvious choice uh, you could possibly make which is what itv <laughs> usually do uh, blue all day from the forum says tchaikovsky swan lake smuggled into a final fantasy game tchaikovsky's source music is beautiful and recognizable but here Uematsu has boiled it down to its essence. I love the arrangement and I love the chiptune representation. I wish I could have heard this with the Japanese audience in 1988. I think it is indicative of the potential for game music. I'm including both the PS1 and original Famicom versions here because they're both so different and fascinating to listen to considering they're differently interpreting the same source music. So yes, here we have uh, just a few loops from the Famicom 1988 version and then uh, into the arranged version uh, for the PS1 version and other versions beyond from 2003.
2003. That seems very late for the PS1 version. Is that right? <laughs> I'm not sure. I might have to double check that. But anyway, that was uh, Tchaikovsky, really, with a bit of help from Uematsu, or possibly the other way around, from Final Fantasy 2. This next piece... Uh, is an interesting one because uh, in discussing the track list for the show, uh, Jesse and I, is Jesse my guest, from the NYU, uh, he was uh, wanting to pick this piece, including the uh, famous spoken word intro, uh, but uh, Jesse was saying that he didn't have much to say about it. Fortunately, I've got loads to say about it. Excellent. So uh, so why did you pick it, first of all, before I, I uh, waffle on about why, I, why it's important to me? Yeah, and that, I mean, his, you know, I don't have an enormous amount of context, but this was definitely um, when I was, uh, I guess, about 14. Uh, my mom got remarried uh, to a very nice man who owned a very nice Amiga Excellent. Uh, and had lots of uh, this was certainly uh, my my closest uh, going into the criminal demimonde because he had tons of copy discs from friends at work. Uh, and it so, was the way things worked back then, yes. mostly. And it was, and it was, you know, so I had a bunch of copy discs and uh, and a real copy of Dungeon Master because that was the unbreakable game. Um, but uh, Blood Money yeah. and all of these Psygnosis games, you know, it was previously when I got a game like Alternate Reality, you know, I had paid you know four weeks allowance for it or whatever, and so I would just mm. hammer away at it, even if I, you know, look, I paid the money. Uh, and this was kind of my first experience of like, oh, you've just got a hundred discs with like the names aren't necessarily even on them, pop something in, see what you think. And Blood Money was the perfect example of like, the game itself was fine, but it was, you know, sort of a straightforward shooter, pretty graphics, super hard. I never made it more than, you know, two or three minutes in. And I would just pop the disc in to watch the intro. Uh, And if friends (laughs) came over, you know, this was definitely one of the things I showed them where I was like, oh, this is really neat. And it definitely, in retrospect, does feel like probably it's sort of part of or the beginning of the demo scene and might have just been a demo that was... I don't know. You, maybe you know the actual historical context because I am not, not clear on it. No, I'm not not entirely sure about that. I mean, we already had lots of. Uh, yeah, there was obviously a big demo scene on the Commodore 64 in Europe, in particular. Um, but yes, and a lot of those people transitioned into the Amiga, and I think some of them did get jobs at the studios. Uh, in uh, certainly, like the the studio Team 17, obviously now still known as the publisher of a lot of stuff, including Worms. Um, they started off as uh, demo coders, but yes, things like these Psygnosis intros, they were, yeah, they were absolutely um, separate from the game in a lot of cases. Like they 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 alluded to the game, but they didn't actually necessarily represent it or uh have always have an enormous amount to do with it but um yeah yeah but this was it was definitely the first thing i ever heard on a computer where i went oh wow this sounds like a you know quote unquote real song yeah um where just the use of samples and every you know that oh this you know sort of sounds like pump up the volume or or something yeah um and yeah it, it i still again you know a simple man Simple, catchy melodies. Uh, I still find it totally delightful. Yeah, so my story with Blood Money is uh, when I got my Amiga, it was, as I say, middle of 1990. Uh, this game came out in 89, so it was already available on in second hand. I did not have uh, Amiga Pirates, so I was a good boy. Actually, I think I ended up with one that was just given to me by a friend, uh, Prince of Persia, as I recall. Um, but generally, I bought things, even if it was second hand, whether that's better or not, I don't know, but I had piles and piles and piles and shelves and shelves of Amiga game boxes. Uh, The Psygnosis ones were notoriously large in a lot of cases. Uh, They 
kind of did this whole thing where they licensed uh, the artist Roger Dean and uh, and got him to do their logos and their art and release things in these big boxes to suggest this idea of uh, extra extra quality. Um, I don't actually remember. I, I have a feeling my copy of Blood Money was actually in some kind of promo box, like maybe a smaller box. But anyway, uh, it was one of the games I picked up when I got my Amiga having you know looked at screenshots and reviews in magazines uh i played it quite a bit i did get as far as level two or three uh but it was I- incredibly challenging game um it was sort of like uh irem's mr heli in that uh you were uh, you were a heli <laughs> and uh yeah. and you had to shoot things and collect money and go into shops and power yourself up uh but yes it was tough um it was quite slow scrolling but uh lots of enemies uh, that required multiple hits and so on but i also was uh fairly blown away by this uh by this intro and uh yeah it was like you say, catchy, cheesy, simple tune, but it was one of the ones that I uh, plugged my Amiga into a stereo to record onto a cassette. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think I still may even have that tape somewhere knocking around and nothing to play it on. But uh, but yeah, uh, I have fond memories of this, as daft as it is. And we actually found uh, this is a slightly remastered version for the for for YouTube, which means it doesn't have doesn't quite have the same normal issues with the extremely separated stereo of Amiga. So it's a slightly more pleasurable listen. Although it means that some of the uh, the samples have been ever so slightly uh, muted in the mix. But I think overall it's a it's a more pleasant experience. So let's hear it. This is Ray Norrish's uh, Blood Money remastered by the Evil Elias V3. First, there was menace. Now, Psygnosis presents. A DMA design game. The biggest unanswered question is where is the money? The biggest unanswered question is where is the money? Question is where is the money? Where is the money? 
Listeners, uh, that was Blood Money. Uh, just, I probably should have said this earlier in the show, but, uh, but my guest Jesse is in NYC, and if you can hear that, oh, that's yeah. the sound. That's the sound of New York City right there. I apologize for the oh, city. No. I mean, no in general, ap- yeah. <laughs> no need to apologize uh, for your city or your president, um, as a lot of people <laughs> tend to do these days. People who I talk to, anyway. Um, but yes, just uh, th- that will save Jay tearing his hair out. What's 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 left of his hair, shall we say? Uh, as he put it to me the other day, trying to uh, get rid of all the uh, all the background noise. There, you'll just have to immerse yourself in the sounds of New York City and think of all those cool movies that were set in New York City over the years as we talk video games music. Yeah, so that was Blood Money. Uh, next up, we're going back to the other uh, 8-bit console of the time. We've had a couple of Famicom pieces, so I felt it was only right to have a Master System piece as well. We talked a little about the Master System on our recent, uh, now available, Genesis Mega Drive podcast, uh, currently available only for $1 plus patrons over at patreon.com slash cane rinse uh, will come out for everybody at the end of september but we reckon what we do is worth a dollar a month so do check that out it's uh, i think it's a cracking podcast two hours and 40 minutes of mega drive chat but as i say there's a little master system talk at the beginning uh, and this piece uh, we have featured something from this game before maybe one or two pieces but it's always an interesting one so sonic the hedgehog obviously put together by sonic team yuji naka and co in japan for sega Project Needle Mouse, whatever it was. Um, but the Master System version gets a lot of love from people who still had a Master System at the time, and even some of those who don't. Uh, some people prefer it as a straight uh, platformer, and it was put together by Team Ancient, who effectively are the Kaz- uh, the Kashiro family. Um, that's always the interesting thing. Like it's, I think it's a mum and a brothers. Uh, so uh, I'd have to actually do more research on this. But Team Ancient, effectively, the Kashiro family is is the short version, um, and so. Yuzo Koshiro, legendary musician known for Streets of Rage and Revenge of Shinobi and other things, uh, took some of the original tunes from the Mega Drive Sonic, but also wrote some of his own stuff. And some of it became very well known in its own right, including this piece. So Sean S. Thomas says, Sonic was a Master System game I adored and managed to beat. Many of my school friends had Mega Drives and raved about their version being more hardcore because it looked better. A trait that still seems true of today's gamers. But having played both now, the Master System titles were a real challenge in comparison and stood on their own two feet as great experiences, trying something different and more testing. So this is the first piece, Green Hill Zone, from Sonic the Hedgehog on the Master System.
So that's the tune that became repurposed and probably most widely known as Toot Toot Sonic Warrior. I think that's what people call it. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna rely on your expertise there. Yeah, it's, it, it, this is where we tip over from the 80s, and so your your expertise like stops dead. <laughs> it's a hard, at, at yeah, 1990. Yeah, yeah. Nope. <laughs> Um, uh, also, the mask system was was not a big deal in America, which is obviously something that's well known because you guys were. I mean, you know, you you have a very uh, a niche sphere of knowledge here, talking about you know computer games, particularly European computer games from the eighties. When, as we know from pretty much you know ninety five percent of podcasters and podcast guests we've had, the Famicom it was uh, or mm -hmm. the NES. It was all about the NES in America in the eighties. Oh yeah, I mean it certainly. Um you know, it's it's fine to see what happens with Commodore, which is you know nineteen. It sort of peaks in nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, which is very late, uh, but then instantly just gets decimated by Nintendo, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I got uh, an NES in I guess eighty seven or eighty eight, and it definitely switched me over. I was still uh, playing computer games on my mom's PC. Um, like Star Flight and other more, you know, sort of PC-like games, uh, still yeah. playing Infocom games, but definitely it, it switched me back to being more of a console gamer like I was when I was uh, a wee lad um, with the Atari uh, 2600. Um, of and course. Yeah. Uh, and whereas Sega, yeah, it wasn't until I hit college that I knew anyone who owned uh, a Sega system. Now, hopefully, uh, we can arrange it so that in future uh, on Kane and Rinse we get to cover uh, some actual 8-bit Atari stuff. We just need one more person, Jesse, you, me, <laughs> and somebody else who can talk 8-bit Atari games, who's actually willing to go back and play them and complete them, as we do, where possible. Uh, so uh, that's something for the future. I think uh, my 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 instinct is to uh, is to open up the uh, the sacred giant spreadsheet to you and see uh, see if you want to put your name down as a potential guest on a few titles and, oh, uh, and I think we'll take it from great. there I would love that um but yes we'll have to well I'll, I'll, now if, if I'm going to do that I'm going to add some more Atari 8-bit titles on there because there's been very little point because you know of our we've got this big amazing diverse talented uh insightful crew but they're the wrong age and nobody had an atari over here and nobody had an atari yeah. over there and well so, certainly uh, one is... person to go back i mean this is you know to me the most interesting part about teaching that 80s class is not the material it's it's the student's reaction to the material because yes. they're all yeah. super bright 22 to 25 year old you know or whatever right. and um and they're just taking it on absolutely fresh and, mm. and just hearing like oh we you know this turns out to be really great this actually even though people you know it's legendary it kind of sucks um just sort of those unvarnished reactions or you yeah know, keep it very interesting and so definitely seeing what um what one of these youngsters thinks of you know bruce lee or whatever would be fascinating yeah uh I would hazard not a lot, but then uh, I've done a little, you know, nothing like what you do, but I've done some uh, going into uh, colleges and speaking to 16 to 18 year olds about what I do with cane and rinse and stuff and uh, talking about treating games 
equally regardless of age and not just assuming too much about them based on their age and uh and i was interested to hear that yeah some kids i think kids are increasingly open to playing older stuff but it's int- i think you know they each have their own kind of cutoff points with the way games look and stuff like that but i spoke to some kids who were who, who said they still found gallagher incredibly playable and stuff like that so. oh yeah the arcade i mean i'm oh, it's always tempting to have more of the arcade and less of the computer stuff because it's such an immediate sugar rush um yeah. certainly some of the stuff that goes over the best as um yeah just you know those things hold up but because it's a program for game designers they're actually pretty open yeah you know there's an interesting parallel between these 80s games i think a lot of what they get out of it is the parallels between that and sort of making a current indie game in terms of like you have these constraints right it, you know it's probably one or two people um your constraints are very different in terms of hardware but you know you don't necessarily know how to program that well and you have four weeks to do this project you know that's a different set of constraints and seeing you know, oh, like Mule is a perfect example of like, this is just a good idea. Like you can mm. polish this up, but you don't need more than 48K, um, you know, to make a game that's just, this is still enjoyable because this is well balanced, well play tested, the math works out, the UI is relatively clear, etc. Um, and I think, yeah, I think modern game designers can, can get something very heartening from that, especially when they're struggling at the beginning. Yeah. 80s games are fun. Yeah, they certainly can be. One thing I found interesting playing some Mario with my nine-year-old niece uh, the other weekend was that uh, the bits in Mario Odyssey where it goes 8-bit style, she did not like that. Hmm. However, when it went uh, when it went 2D side-on in Galaxy, when you like go in the big cylinder and the gameplay is fundamentally the same, but it still retains the polygon look, she was absolutely fine with that. Um, and she's playing new Super Mario Brothers. So... Yeah, that was curious. Hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. What what aesthetically? Right, because it's a reference to something she has no reference to. So true, true, and yeah. Um, but when I showed her the graphics to Super Mario World, that was just shaded enough to make it not look too old school for her nine year old right. mind. So yeah, there's there's a lot to lot to take into account here. But yeah, there's no doubt. Like one of the things we, although we we go into games. Uh, not judging them by their age if we come to a game. And yeah, I imagine if we tried to play something like yeah, a mid-80s 8-bit Atari role-playing game, for the most part, we'd find it almost unplayable in many cases now. They are brutal. Uh, I mean, there is that funny thing of, especially the role-playing games compared to, you know, like yeah. uh, Sierra Online games, you know, many of them were not playtested in any, any way we would recognize yeah. as playtesting. But because they are puzzle games, you know, you can use a walkthrough, um, and you can sure. still kind of like get the experience to some extent without without it being terrible. Mm. Whereas role playing games like Ultima Four has many many good qualities about it, but if you're mm. not willing to do, you know, twenty five yeah. hours of wandering monster, very very basic tactical combat, um, there's just no way around it, and it's it is a real problem. Yeah, we I think the oldest one of the I mean we we did Space Invaders recently, which obviously you can still play. It has aged in certain ways, but it doesn't. It's not like a massive uh, barrier to entry, but I think the oldest one we went back to that we, we'd love to have actually gone back and completed, but it was just too much to get it working properly in our brains was uh, the original Castle Wolfenstein yeah, from 1981. Yeah. No, I play a snippet of that in class when we talk about Wolfenstein. I mean, it's genius. I right, mean, it, and, and you're, you're Andy, and I forget who else it was, but your reactions were exactly yeah. like, this is amazing. We can't play this. But this is amazing. But this yeah. is unplayable. But this is, yes. yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, Spot on, yeah. 
And yeah, that yeah. guy, Silas Warner, is a fascinating figure in general. He did a lot of really impressive stuff, um, including uh, along with Castle Wolfenstein's like voice synthesis, which was you know entirely his invention. Um, yeah, uh, Robot War is his other big game, and that's is like the first programming game where you literally write mm. a program to program mm. a robot, and then you fight them out. And magazines mm. would have contests where you know you send in your your script of your robot, and they will fight them all against each other in a round robin and print the results. And it was yeah, it's really interesting stuff. I don't even want to become a game designer, but I do want to come to your lectures. Uh, if you're ever in New York, well, I will, I'll definitely <laughs> plug the, I want to plug, you know, the game center in general, because it is a, um, pretty open. I feel like it's sort of underknown in terms of like, we do stuff for free and people can just show up. Like that's how yeah. I started working there is there were talks and the talks had sandwiches. And I was like, well, I haven't heard of this I game, but worst comes to worst, good sandwich. Uh, and then I started talking to people and, and now I'm here. Um, but yeah, there's, um, every Thursday we have playtesting, uh, which is open to the community. Uh, a lot of students are playtesting their games, but people also bring in their own games. Um, on Wednesdays, there's Killer Queen Casuals. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Killer Queen. It was recently announced for Switch, actually. No. Um, Killer Queen so. is oh, this. Hang on. Sure. It, yes, I know. This is the one that's like a single screen, old school kind of thing. Yeah, it's right? kind of jousty. Yeah. Jousty, yeah. Um, like a basic mechanic of Joust, but it is in its full incarnation. I think it's going to be smaller and changed on the Switch, but its full incarnation is a uh, two arcade cabinets that are connected together. Each have five players on it, mm. uh, and it is a 5v5 sort of eSport arcade oh. game. Uh, wow. And it's it's absolutely lovely. It was created by one of the people who created it is also an adjunct at the Game Center. Um, and it's right. become a, a it's, you know, it's been around for eight years and it's gradually growing and you know yeah, getting it's going more commercial more popular. big time yeah and uh but every wednesday and friday um one of our professors charles pratt runs killer queen uh you know playing and stuff and people from the community just come in and it's free and it's incredibly fun if it's half as good as uh towerful then um I'm, I'm oh it's that. it's it i mean it's very different but it is very um it's hard to explain i don't want to it's, it's a it's a absolutely brilliant game it's wow. worth looking up online, certainly. Awesome. So yeah, well, uh, finish plugging stuff while we while we're on this. Uh, so yeah, where do people actually need to go? Where can they find you on social media and all that? Sort oh, of thing? I'm I'm at Jesse Fuchs on Twitter, uh, and that's probably the main thing. And um, yeah, I'm just sort of there. Uh, I uh, I don't really have anything uh, particular to plug unless you're an incoming freshman uh, to NYU, in which case you should drop your major and enroll in game design, and then you will maybe be in my intro to game design class. Um, <laughs> that's my only uh, yeah. But um, beyond that, uh, yeah, just in terms of uh, well, the the last track actually I kind of included because I wanted something more modern but also something that came from our uh, incubator programs i assumed that. that's what 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 this was because i wasn't familiar with it uh i mean I, i've listened to it and I, I really liked it so yeah what, what tell us the story behind the piece so zeke verant uh was one of the uh, members of the initial mfa class uh and and he made one of my favorite games that's come out of the game center and it's a game that and it just is something that you know i i saw when it started in one of bennett's prototype classes and then it became his thesis project and then uh, as the first class was graduating, we started an, excuse me, a summer incubator program where students get uh, like maybe five grand to stay alive and, you know, help from uh, professionals about turning their game into 
um, you know, a commercial game over the summer, essentially. Mm. Uh, and then this was the first, it was, it was the first game from NYU where I kind of saw it through, go through the full cycle and then appear, you know, on a console, you know, that I could buy, uh, just like a, a quote unquote real game. And I definitely had that sort of moment of like, oh, my friend, you know, I just got his thing on a console, which is of course a real game. Um, yeah. cause I'm still an eight year old. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, Zeke is, sort of an exemplar, I think, of the program in that he came from a uh, a new music background, like he had uh, studied under Kyle Gahn and had done a new music opera as his thesis in undergrad and definitely came into the program, I think, uh, knowing, being very interested in games, but having way more experience from that music end of things. Uh, and the program is very open to people coming with a portfolio that it is more about potential in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a game that I feel like was in some ways constructed from the music up and sort of this, you know, game feel and coming from that angle of if I get, if I get an aesthetic that is tuned to what I want, everything else will sort of follow out of that. Um, and yeah, I love this game. It's, um, how can I describe it? It is a, he calls it a bullet heaven game. So mm. it, it, it is nice. sort of like a meditative bullet helly sort of thing that has, uh, a control scheme that uh, the only reference I can think of is that game Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Obviously, this is an extremely different game, but yeah. the same like you're doing one thing with the left joystick and controlling another thing with the right joystick and like mm. on the harder level, like I have not been able to get through the hardest levels in this game because my brain will not split in that way. Mm. I also have never been able to play the drums uh, because <laughs> my feet and my hands, you know, don't don't know how to not listen to each other or listen to each other in the right way or whatever. So, and this definitely feels like, oh, this is a game made by an expert musician that will give you that sense of that mental skill of being able to independently do two things at once coordinated. Um, and yeah, you have these two um, sort of tails that float around the, the hard body and the soft body controlled by the different joysticks and they're trying to paint the level um, and avoid obstacles and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, it just it it's uh, it feels great, and and the sound design is absolutely lovely. And this piece um, is yeah, it's just it's the title music, and I think that it sort of stands alone nicely as sort of a Brian Eno style drone piece. Um, and yeah, good 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 study music. And it'll be a lovely way to end the show shortly. Is there a way that people can find and play this game somehow? Oh yeah, it's on PS4 and it's on Steam. Uh, it goes on sale every so often, but I, yeah, I recommend picking it up. If, if look up a video and if it looks intriguing, uh, there was recently a speed run of it also in uh, summer games done quick. Ah. Um, and yeah, definitely if it looks, if it looks like you'd enjoy it, I, I think you'll enjoy it. Superb. Uh, remember listeners, please do venture over to the forum, canarince.com slash forum or Twitter at canarince. Use the hashtag sound of play. Or they, uh, we, we, we have a Facebook, of course, too. Uh, you can request your favourite songs or other curios and oddities from the history of the video game's music medium. We like an odd one, too. We'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each normal Sound of Play show. Uh, please subscribe if you don't already and leave us uh, an iTunes or Apple podcast review or rating or on whatever other platform you get your podcasts from. 
follow us on the social media, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you've enjoyed this show and appreciate what we do, please do consider donating that uh, paltry piffling amount of a dollar a month. Not, I know it's not paltry or piffling to everybody, um, but uh, we really appreciate the input. The more of you that do this, the better we can make the show, the more we can keep going. And you get some perks and bonuses now. You get each cane and rinse a week early and you get each of our cane and rinse format specials three months early starting with the Genesis Mega Drive show that I've mentioned which includes me, Dan Clark and John Linneman of Digital Foundry Retro uh, and it's gone down pretty well so far. Uh, so do check all that out, consider that dollar and uh, it really is very much appreciated. So uh, just remains for me now to thank uh, Jesse Fuchs. Thank you for joining me, Jesse. It's been absolutely fascinating, as I knew it would be. Thank you. No, this has been delightful. Uh, and yes, hopefully we'll speak again. We might even yeah. just chat for an hour about Atari. Eight bit Atari games. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it it's not like I knew other people in America who had an Atari 800. I no, was sure. the only person here as well. So, uh, yeah. I, I, despite the fact that the, you know the statistics show we were out there somewhere, I, I feel your pain. Just took us to 2018. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, everybody. And we'll leave you with this uh, Ziegvarant soft body. <laughs>